you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, she's one of our favorites. We lean on her for sound legal advice, but she is not your lawyer, so nothing she says should be considered legal advice to you. Uh, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, a member of the bar in good standing. She's a lawyer. She's smarter than us. We're going to have her explain this ruling to us like we're five years old. M. Carpenter back on her tell. How are you, ma'am? I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you. How are you? I'm just having a habeas kind of day. How about you? <laughs> I've had better. Uh, okay. So the Supreme Court came out with this ruling. Uh, I follow a lot of what we kind of jokingly call law Twitter, uh, kind of a collection of our various lawyer friends online for good reason, because they give good perspective on a lot of things. I've never seen uniform outrage at a ruling like this. Like we've seen divisive stuff like the abortion stuff over the last few weeks. Like every single lawyer I follow and talk to was just like, what is this? I Was that the same reaction you got from this court ruling uh, in this uh, Arizona Department of Corrections ruling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it made me very angry. It was um, I've been very angry at the Supreme Court a lot lately. And, and this one may have <laughs> put me over the top. I've defended the court as an institution quite quite a bit over the years and, you know, argued against saying that all justices are, are partisan and that they're only ruling in their ideological uh, druthers. And this this makes that very difficult to, to continue. Okay, what is it about this case? Because, and by the way, this was progressive lawyers. This was uh, conservative lawyers. Like all of them were like, we don't like this one. So let's let's get into the nitty gritty of this ruling. Um, it was a six three ruling. <laughs> Just where do you even want to start with this? Because it's complicated. You basically have two guys that are on death row out in Arizona. This is not a conviction hearing. This is a hearing about their representation. Walk us through it kind of slowly so we not know what we're dealing with. Before they get to the Supreme Court, why is this kind of a hearing important? Explain habeas to folks and kind of just give us the background here. Okay. Uh, yeah. So let's say you're on trial in state court for a crime and you have a bad lawyer 
doesn't investigate your case, crucial facts that could show your innocence, they're never presented to the jury. So this and lots of mistakes are made, you're convicted, you go to prison. You go through all your direct appeals, the, you know, the appeal stage right after trial and you lose them all. Um, so your conviction at that point is final. And, then, and now you are in what they call the post-conviction stage. And that's kind of confusing maybe to a lay person because you probably think of conviction is happening when the trial is over and you're found guilty, you're convicted. But technically, you're not post-conviction until all of your direct appeals are exhausted. Um, usually that means you've gone all the way up to your state's highest court, their state Supreme Court, um, and all of your appeals have been denied. You are now, your conviction is final. So now you're in the post-conviction stage and most state courts allow you to file a, post a petition for post-conviction relief. And some states call it a habeas, um, and it's also called a habeas at the federal level, habeas corpus, petition for writ of habeas corpus, which is basically get me back before the court. I have things that I want to, to raise. Um, so you file for your post-conviction relief in state court, and you have a new lawyer, but he's also a bad lawyer, and he doesn't bring up the fact that you had a bad lawyer at your trial. In other words, he does not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel argument for you at your post-conviction hearing. So you, you exhaust your state post-conviction efforts and you've lost those and, and you're, you now have to move on to the next stage, which is to file a habeas corpus in federal court. And finally you say, hey, my conviction is wrong because I had an ineffective lawyer who did not do their job. Now, normally you cannot raise an issue for the first time at the federal habeas proceeding. If you didn't raise it in state court, then you have forfeited your right to bring it up in federal court and that's called procedural default. But back in 2011 in Martinez versus Ryan, the court had said there was an exception to this and that's the sixth amendment right to counsel. And that makes sense. If your post conviction lawyer failed to argue that your trial counsel was ineffective, then your post-conviction lawyer was also ineffective. So it's not really your fault that the issue wasn't raised. So Martinez says you can go ahead and raise it for the first time during your federal habeas petition. So here comes Justice Thomas and his merry band of conservative justices in this week's opinion. And they say that Martinez may allow you to bring that claim of ineffective counsel that your previous bad lawyers didn't raise, but, but we're not gonna let you present any evidence to prove it. So let that sink in. You can go into court and say, but I, I didn't have an effective lawyer and the courts keep, won't let you put any evidence on. And I said, what is the chances do you think that they're going to agree with you that you had an effective lawyer at trial when they're not going to let you prove that in any way? So but they rely, the court is relying on USC 2254E2, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act from 1996, which is the law that says a federal court can't hold an evidentiary hearing on a petitioner's claim that was not brought up in state court. But that law was in effect in 2011 when Martinez came out. So Martinez, you know, kind of recognized an exception to that. Um, but here's the rub. There is no constitutional right to counsel for post-conviction proceedings. Once your direct appeals are done and your conviction is final, you don't have that triggered Sixth Amendment right to counsel for a habeas proceeding. They're actually considered like quasi-civil procedures. Um, so, you know, your lawyer in that stage, if that if they mess up, the court says that's attributed to you. 
it's not actually your fault, but it's now your fault legally. Your lawyer's poor performance is your fault. And that's not actually a new concept. A lawyer's mistakes can be held against their clients. That's not unusual. You know, if you, um, somebody files a lawsuit against you and you hire a lawyer and they drag their feet, don't file an answer in time and you get a default judgment against you, you know, it's held against you even though it was your lawyer's mistake. That's not a new concept, but there has been an exception when the mistake is because of a constitutionally ineffective counsel. So what the court said here in this opinion is that because there is no right to counsel in a habeas or in post-conviction relief, then it can't be a constitutionally ineffective counsel argument because you didn't have a constitutional right to have that counsel, even though the ineffectiveness is going back to your trial court. The fact that your post-conviction lawyer didn't bring it up is not an effective counsel on, uh, constitutionally. So that's that's the crux of this case. But what makes it so infuriating to me anyway? What what this opinion is has been so inflammatory? There's several things. First of all, I find it very uh, frustrating in, in in any case, any criminal law decision, criminal case when the opinion goes to great lengths to describe in detail the horrific and disgusting crimes that the defendants in the cases are accused of or convicted of. Almost like they're trying to justify the opinion by pointing out how terrible these people are. And that's the case in, in this. And this, these are two men facing the death penalty. They're two different cases. And they, are, they have horrific facts laid out. Um, it's not necessary. Um, <laughs> the criminal the criminal law system applies to you no matter what you're convicted of. So the fact that they lay out in detail the, the terrible things that these men are charged with, that's that's number one. That's just inflammatory. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I saw on Twitter, which was, uh, so I know I'm not the only one who was disgusted by it, is there is a footnote uh, in Justice Thomas's opinion. It was Justice Thomas who wrote this. And in it, he, he brings up the fact that the petitioner, the defendants in one of the two cases had said, you know, speaking of procedural default, when we were arguing all of this in the district court at the lower level, the state didn't even bring up the fact that I hadn't raised this issue in lower court. Justice Thomas's footnote says, well, we have the discretion to forgive a failure to raise the issue in the court below, so we're going to. So think about that. You are going to potentially be put to death because of uh, failing to raise an issue. And we're going to let that happen. But we're not going to hold the state to the same standard with a much less dire outcome. They didn't do their job. They didn't bring up this issue below, even though they were supposed to. We have the authority to forgive them for that. So the state here is forgiven. And this opinion is very heavy on the state's rights and what a burden it is on the state to be tied up in litigation over these claims and how they are they don't want to step on the state's toes by uh, interfering with convictions any more than is, is necessary. And, you know, very differential to state power and state rights. And that's that's very frustrating as well. And just the fact that they want to be this um, pedantic when it is death on the line, uh, it never sits well with me. You know, I think that when somebody is facing the death penalty, that is not the time to um, nitpick about whether or not uh, they should have um, raise this. Like, what is it going to hurt in the long run to let these men 
put on the evidence that perhaps they did not have effective counsel. And, and in at least one of these cases, from what I have read, there is some pretty strong evidence in the defendant's favor that if the jury had heard it at his trial may have led to a different result. So basically, they are going to allow the state at this point to proceed to executions for uh, men because they had bad lawyers. And as much as I, I hate it, there are bad lawyers doing capital cases and appellate work, not so much with you know public defenders. I've talked about them before, especially when they're at the level of doing these kinds of cases. They're uh, very competent, great lawyers. But there are uh, a lot of, there are other attorneys that take these cases um, and that are not qualified to do it, and they're not—they mean well, but it happens. There is unfortunately some bad lawyering that goes on here, and you know, you, you might face death for that. And the fact that you know you're being held accountable for the failures of your lawyer, your educated lawyer, when you may not have much education yourself, your lawyer makes a mistake, and they say, "Well, that's your fault." You know, that, it, it, that's one thing when you're fighting over money, but we are fighting for their lives here. So I've gone on and on, so I'll stop there. But that, that's what's going on, and that's why I'm angry and why so many other attorneys are angry about this opinion. I'm Andrew Donson on the M. Carpenter Show, where she has just gone 11 <laughs> minutes on Shin versus Ramirez, but that's fine. That's what we bring her on for. Um, Sotomayor in her dissent uh, said this, that, this was, and I'm quoting her here, an extreme malfunction that the prejudicial deprivation of a right that constitutes the foundation of our adversarial system. She's talking about representation here. Um, I, I take it that's how you see it as well. But what do you think she means by a malfunction? Because this gets into legal terms. Like you said, this is a habeas hearing. It's very different from a trial. This isn't about the conviction itself. It's about how you got to the conviction. Um, when you get into nuts and bolts of these legal things, how much is it important to make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed? Because the general public, like me, I'm not a lawyer, you know, we don't understand all the procedural stuff, but that's what the court does a lot of rulings on, on the procedural stuff, on the nitty gritty details. How important is it to get these things right? And how surprising is it to you that when something like this, something fundamental like representation comes up, that we get a ruling like this? It's not surprising because I've seen it. You know, I've seen, I've seen death penalty cases upheld over um, other things, you know, missing a, a filing deadline by a few days or, you know, things like that. So it doesn't surprise me to see, um, you know, something so serious and being trivialized and, and you know, dismissed out of hand for, um, technical reasons or, or trivialities. So it doesn't surprise me, but it, it is a malfunction of the system for this to happen. Um, and every state, you know, and I don't want to get too nitpicky, but there were parts of, of these cases that had that that hinged on Arizona state laws and how those laws are drafted and what they say. And so you're going to have 50 different versions of that at minimum. So um, it's hard sometimes to apply a blanket rule um, across the state. The law likes to be specific. The court likes to interpret laws very narrowly and, and very specifically. And that can result in inconsistent outcomes. Yeah, talking to him, Carpenter, our good friend, senior editor 
at ordinary-times.com, an attorney. Uh, we're going to take a quick break because we went a little long there. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about this case, Shin versus Ramirez. Uh, also getting to a little bit more about representation, how it's fundamental to our system, but also how it keeps coming up over and over again. We start talking about the lower level problems in the criminal justice system, how representation at those early stages and lower level of the criminal justice system is greatly affecting a lot of the problems we're seeing even in the headlines. More with M. Carpenter on Her Tell right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Donaldson, uh, joined by our legal expert, M. Carpenter. She's a frequent contributor to this program, uh, and she is the senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. You can catch her writing there. Um, let's get to some basics here, because this case, this Supreme Court case is about representation. How big of a problem is representation in the criminal justice system right now? You've been a prosecutor. Um, you've done uh, like all attorneys have to do. You've done uh work as a public defender type work where you have to do the pro bono work. How big a problem is this? Because when we start talking about things like bail reform, we start talking about things like pretrial confinement, we start talking about how the criminal justice system does a better job of making criminals than deterring criminals. A lot of those streams start crossing and kind of have their headwaters with representation, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing when you have an inexperienced attorney representing you in traffic court, um, there, the, the consequences are not so dire, the stakes are not so high, um, and we have to learn somewhere, right? You know, criminal attorneys don't just go into court their first time with, uh, you know, knowing all the ins and outs and, and not ever going to make a mistake. But when we're talking about more serious crimes where the stakes are higher, where we're talking about life in prison or death, 
there needs to be the most effective counsel possible in these cases. And the people who dedicate their lives to this kind of work are generally very competent and, and uh, very well versed in these cases, and they're going to do a great job. Even the best lawyer makes mistakes, okay? And so even the best lawyer at a trial could lead to a valid ineffective assistance of counsel claim. So it's not necessarily that the lawyers were bad or negligent, although that is definitely the case at times. Um, it's just there's so many little things, mechanisms in the courtroom that uh, can lead to an error. Judges, you know, judges are reversed all the time and they're supposed to be the legal expert in the room, but they make mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes. So I think that that's the area where there needs to be deference and to not even listen to the evidence of the, that the defendant has or the argument that they have of that, you know, listen, there's all this evidence out there. My lawyer didn't even bring it up. And when you have, in, like in these cases, multiple levels of attorneys who have failed to bring that evidence up, I think you want to look at why did that happen? Were they lacking in funds to hire an investigator? Did they not have the money to pursue the, those those avenues. And it's always a quirk of the system, especially if you're a court appointed attorney, which a lot of them are in these cases, when you want money for something, when you need an expert or you need an investigator, who decides whether or not you get that money? The state, the judge, the state, the very system that whose mercy your client finds themselves at, they decide whether or not you're going to, to get those funds. You have to ask the judge. And the, the prosecutor has the opportunity to stand there and argue against it, you know, and that's that's a, a serious disadvantage to a defendant in our system. How much um, pretrial confinement and simple procedural stuff could be cleaned up by changing how that system of representation works? I know there's not enough lawyers to go around, um, and there's especially not enough good lawyers, and I'm not trying to discourage anybody, but same thing with basketball coaches or shoe salesmen or whatever, you know. There's the really good, and then there's the really bad, and there's this vast gulf in between on the spectrum of good to bad, right? It's like any other profession. There's only so many good ones to go around. Um, is there any kind of reform or regulatory or legislative thing we can do here to take that burden off? Because it sure seems to me that a lot of the issues we're having in, in the criminal justice system starts there at those entry-level kind of, you know, the initial hearings, the indictments, things like that. There seems to be so much room for reform there, but there doesn't really seem to be any answers coming on to what we can do about any of it. Right. And public defenders, especially in the lower level and trial courts, their their caseloads are humongous. And I've seen um, experienced, uh, very competent public defender, at least one I know of in, in my area, who lost his license for a while because he had a client sit in jail for months and he had not filed any motions or, and that was not purposeful or, inten or intentional on his part. It was simply a matter of one fell through the cracks for him. Um, inexcusable and you know he he had to have received some sort of a punishment from the bar for that and he should have. Um, but when you overload lawyers with cases like this, that's what's gonna happen. And when, um, you know, your clients don't have bail and they're sitting in jail, um, you know, that impedes their ability to contact you. It impedes your ability. You can't spend all day sitting in the jail interviewing your clients. So it impacts, you know, how much time you get to spend with your client to prepare. Um, it, it definitely clogs up the system. So 
I don't think, I think bail reform on lower level cases is definitely uh, an avenue and into some higher level cases, depending on the facts of the case and, and what they're actually charged with. Now, do I, do I think that anyone charged with capital murder is going to find themselves in a position where they uh, should have bail reform uh, applied to them and that they're not going to sit in jail? Probably not going to ever happen. Um, but yeah, there, there are things that can be done to ease the burden on the attorneys, which would in turn would help the clients. Uh, M. Carpenter joining us, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com and an attorney. Um, you've been on both sides of this. You've been a prosecutor. You've been a trial attorney. Uh, you've done other kind of legal work. How big of a problem is having good lawyers right now? Because we keep seeing the stats about law schools. We know the overarching problem of the cost of secondary education anyway, the cost of law schools even more so in most cases. You've talked about your own path and difficulty in becoming a lawyer. Um, how big of an issue is this going forward? Because if there's not enough attorneys to go around, then these representational issues are going to get even worse. The projection is that uh, law is going to have an issue with lawyers going forward. Talk about how that affects both sides, both the prosecution side and the defense side, because again, uh, this is supposed to be an adversarial system, which means those are supposed to be equally matched sides. And that's just not the case when we get rulings like this, is it? Correct. Um, you know, public defending doesn't pay very well. Um, it pays even less if you're not part of a public defender's office, but you're on what we call the appointment list or in federal court, they call it the panel attorneys, where you know you get assigned cases that for whatever reason, the local public defender's office can't take it, either they're busy or they have a conflict. Um, and so those what you have there are people who are kind of doing criminal law part time. So um, and they're getting paid very little. It's been a few years, but as far as I know, they haven't raised the rates. When I was doing criminal defense, you made $45 an hour for outside of court work and $65 an hour for being in court. That sounds like a lot of money to most people, you know, an hourly rate. But when you think that private counsel is paid, you know, <laughs> five times that or more, um, you, you know, you, you started to maybe at times get what you pay for. Um, and so if you can't, if you have inexperienced lawyers or lawyers that they come into that profession and they find out they're not going to make good money there, they're going to go do something else. So you might lose the cream of the crop. You might lose the better lawyers because they're going to need to go where the money is because, you know, they have student loans to pay. Um, so you do run a risk of not having quality representation. And when you don't have quality representation on the defendant's side, you know, that means that the prosecution side, um, you have the potential for errors there. If you don't have a defense attorney to stand up and object or, or to uh, stop a prosecutor from making a mistake that violates that defendant's rights, what's supposed to happen and often does happen is that person's conviction is going to be reversed on the other end because there wasn't a competent defense counsel to raise the issue or effectively in court. And so, you know, the prosecution's going to end up losing out, with, hopefully, when a um, appellate court looks at that case. So, you know, you need good, good lawyers on both sides. And prosecutors' offices pay a little more than defense, than criminal defense, uh, public defenders' offices. But it's not, it's still not a lot of money comparatively in the legal profession. Back to where we started with the uh, Shin versus Ramirez case. Uh, what kind of case law is going to have to articulate through the system to get something like this reviewed again? Because now now it's done. So now we're back to that precedent word again. 
uh, this is going to be the standard for a while. What kind of case law would it take to get this reviewed again by maybe a future court or a re-examining of this court? I don't think the future is in case law for this issue. I think it's a legislative issue. Um, I think that the statute that they relied on is what they need to, to revisit here. Um, there are two exceptions in that statute for when the underlying um, lower court not being raised in the lower court can be excused. And this court says that these two individuals, their situations don't fit either of those exceptions. It would not be difficult to um, add an exception to that that would include um, when counsel is ineffective. My concern is with that um, Sixth Amendment right to counsel when they're saying, well, you didn't have a right to counsel at this stage. So any errors that that lawyer made are your fault. Whereas if that had been in the trial court at that level, the errors would be the lawyer's fault and not held against the defendant. So um, my worry is that that would be expanded, that we'll start um, looking at that right to counsel with less reverence than we do now. Yeah, M. Carpenter, always excellent stuff. One of our favorite people, uh, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Let folks know where your Twitter feed is because we can't get you to write anything to save our lives lately because I'm joking, I'm joking. She's busy saving the world with her day job right now, uh, but she'll be back soon. Uh, let folks know where they can find your old stuff at Ordinary Times and your social media. You're one of the best uh, Twitter followers out there. Uh, so share that with folks until they get you back on her tell again. Sure. Yes, you can find my writing at ordinary-times.com. Um, and I know uh, I'm not as prolific as I would like to be or as I used to be, but um, like you said, I am busy. So uh, I owe you something one of these days soon, I promise. Uh, but yes, please do find me on Twitter at WVSquireS. That's E-S-Q-U-I-R-E-S-S. -S, and, and give me a follow so that I can catch up with Andrew someday. Uh, well, we all have to have dreams. Uh, M. Carpenter, we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the legal insight. And uh, we'll have you back again soon next time the Supreme Court does something really hot, which is probably going to be uh, next Tuesday because we got a couple more Tuesdays of this court term to go yet. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.